We know, church, that thanks to the prophet Isaiah, for the last year of our church life, we have been considering, contemplating, meditating, and fixing our minds on the doctrine of eschatology and what it is that God has planned for the end of the age. And I know that it's been a lot. It's been hard. It's a little bit like jerky. It is tough to chew. And yet neither Isaiah nor myself will apologize for this. And the reason for that, the reason for that is because the doctrine of eschatology has been so neglected for decades in the Church of America, we really feel that we are making up for lost time. And you see, this is really important for us because there's this rumor, this rumor that circulates in local churches that doctrine and eschatology, especially doctrine and theology, and especially the doctrine of eschatology, although interesting and intriguing at some theoretical level, actually doesn't hold the power or potential to change or transform my life. Have you heard this? Do you believe this? And honestly, I don't know of any doctrine more ignored or minimized than the doctrine of eschatology because we don't feel that these doctrines are practical or useful for everyday life. To the great impoverishment of our souls, we neglect them, we minimize them, we ignore them. And eschatology is at the top of the list. And yet I remain unmoved. And I remain absolutely convinced that it is the essence of practical. I am absolutely persuaded from the testimony of the Bible that the greater we truly know and love the end times and what God has planned for the end of the age, the more wise and holy and passionate and loving and courageous we will be with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason why I feel that way about eschatology is that it is the universal testimony of all the Bible. That part of a well-balanced theological breakfast is a sizable portion of what God has planned for the future. That you have got to know with some level of depth and specificity what God has planned for the end of the age. And the reason you do is because if you actually believe this stuff, it really actually has the power to change and transform your very lives. That's exactly what the Apostle John says in his letter. And I know we're in Isaiah and we've already done 1 John. And yet, and yet there is an issue related to eschatology in 1 John that I want to revisit this morning. Because what he says about eschatology reveals and proves that it is not merely intellectually stimulating, but it's actually profoundly practical for our lives. And you might remember John's burden in this letter. You might remember that there were some clever con men who crept into the church and caused real confusion about the doctrine of salvation and especially sanctification. And believe it or not, one of the things they claimed was that holiness and obedience were optional. That one could claim access to all the saving benefits of Jesus Christ and yet live their lives in total disregard of the word of Christ. That they could live in the darkness and claim to be in the light. That they could, claim, that they could live like the devil and claim to be the children of God. The problem with that, John says, is that that's not how children of God born again actually live their lives. And to be totally honest, that actually sounds like children of the devil. 
And you see, that's just the thing about 1 John chapter 3. John's entire agenda in 1 John chapter 3 is to prove that there are two and only two kinds of people living in the world. There are children of God born again, and there are children of the devil dead in sin. That's it. Those are the only two people living in the world. And these false teachers and their little fanboys, despite their credible sounding claims to the contrary, were nothing more than sons and daughters of the devil himself. In fact, John goes on to say that anyone who lives, whose lives are filled with unrepentant sin and casual disregard of the word of Christ, that they are in fact, despite what they claim, offspring of the evil one. And I know that sounds harsh and over the top. But the reality is, John says, is that born again children of God, however imperfect it may be, actually pursue holiness. They do. They're far from perfect. And they've got their issues to be sure. But the reality is, is that sons and daughters of the living God prove the reality of their salvation with imperfect but ever increasing displays of profound purity in their lives. And believe it or not, that brings us back to the very issue of eschatology, because one of the things, get this, one of the things that John says actually produces purity and holiness in our lives is precisely what it is that God has planned for the future. Is he born again, children of God? We are not driven merely, only by what God has done in the past through his son but by also what he will do in the future in and through his son. That's exactly what John says. So let's go to the text. This morning, if you have those half sheets either way, this is where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text three inescapable realities. Three inescapable realities that you do and will experience if you are children of God born again. That's where we're going. Three inescapable realities that you do and will experience if you are children of God born again. And the first reality is this. Number one, the reality of the past. The father has given unspeakable affection. The father has given unspeakable affection. Because the thing about chapter three is that it was brought into existence by one phrase at the end of chapter two. And it is the phrase, born from God. Look at chapter 2, verse 29. John says, if you know that he, that is Christ, if you know that Christ is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born from him. And that's the phrase right there, born from him. That is the phrase that brought the entirety of chapter 3 into existence. So now John's job is to take an entire chapter and unfold the implications of what that means and what that looks like to be born from God. Because you remember, you remember that to be born from God is exactly what Christ meant when he told Nicodemus that he had to be born again. Same thing. 
This is what Paul meant in Titus 3.5 when he talked about regeneration. It's the same thing. This is what Paul meant in Ephesians 2.5 when he said that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. Same thing. This is exactly what Ezekiel described in chapter 36 when he says that one day in the future, God would take out of rebellious people a heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, put his spirit within them, and cause them to walk in his statutes and transform them from the inside out. It's the exact same thing. You understand, this is not reincarnation. This is regeneration. And when you connect the biblical dots, you find out you know exactly what it means to be born from God. And what it is, you understand, is a miracle. A life-giving, soul-awakening miracle that God had to perform for you to believe and be saved. Because we were never going to do that on our own, you understand. Never, ever were we going to do that. All people are born blind and dead and damned and helpless, which requires that something supernatural take place in order to believe and get saved. And that is exactly, exactly what being born again is referring to. Put it this way. If you are saved here this morning, and I hope you all are, God saved you through the sovereign, instantaneous work of God the Spirit through the gospel, which enabled you to see the beauty of Christ and which produced in you the very repentance and faith by which you were saved. That's what it means to be born from God. In other words, if you didn't get all that, What it means is that even when you were dead, God walked up to the tomb of your dead soul and he said, live. And you became alive. You understand, this isn't a mere makeover of the soul. This is a divine takeover of the soul. And you can totally see why this doctrine is such a big deal, can't you? It makes total sense why John would take an entire chapter to unfold the implications of what this means and what this looks like. And notice the first implication of regeneration that John draws out in chapter 3, verse 1. Look at the text. He says, behold, what kind of love, what manner of love, or how great is the love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and that is exactly what we are. The question is, do you see the connection? Do you see the connection between this verse and the last verse of chapter 2? Listen carefully. When he talks about the Father's love in chapter 3, verse 1, he means the Father's particular love displayed in the miracle of regeneration. And when he talks about being children of God, he means that being born from God is the very thing that made us his children. Do you see? And even though we can't hear John's voice, we can see John's voice and the words that he uses. And we can see that he is absolutely gripped with emotion. Look at the text. Behold. Behold. What kind of love the Father has has given to us that we should be called children of God. Behold, he says, 
behold. And I know that sounds a little bit like Shakespeare, but what that is is an expression of surprise or shock or joy or wonder or awe or maybe all of the above. And yet, what is it exactly that has John so gripped by emotion? And what it is are the wonders of the Father's love. And in particular, the wonders of the Father's love displayed in and through the sovereign miracle of being born again. That's the issue. Even when we were dead, Paul says, even with the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. You understand, church, the Father does love you. He does. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. But what you have to come to grips with is that the Father's love was revealed in our lives when he awakened us from the dead. When he opened blind eyes, when he took out of us the heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh and put his very spirit within us. You understand that was love, sovereign, awakening, resurrecting love. And had he not done that, we would have never believed and been saved. And as John is writing these words, born of God, he gets overwhelmed with emotion. And he has to stop and he has to say something about this love, this sovereign love that intervened and and awakened us. And, And all he can say is, what kind of love is this? And I know your version says, perhaps, how great is the love. But that word literally means, or or, or what, uh, that word literally means, what kind of love is this? What kind of love? What kind of love is it? that harpoons through the hardened human heart and creates life where it did not previously exist. What kind of love is it that melts the heart of stone and creates saving faith in Jesus Christ? What kind of love is this? This kind of love, and it simply defies description. Because you understand that word, what kind of, is used seven times in the New Testament. And every single time it is used, it is used to describe a heightened state of emotion. What kind of man is this? The disciples asked. That even the winds and the sea obey him. Same word. You understand this is the word you use when all other words fall short. When there is something so grand and glorious that it simply defies description. And that is precisely what the father's love in making us regenerated is. So the question is church, has it dawned on you what God had to do to save you from eternal woe and despair? Do you, do you marvel at the miracle of being born again is what I'm asking. Do you pause and ponder and reflect and consider every day the reality that had God not intervened and awakened you by his sovereign love that you would have never believed and been saved. And maybe you're thinking, wait, hold on a second, Jared. How can you say that? What do you mean I was never going to believe? 
I seem to remember repenting. I believed. I did those things. And that's true. That's true. You did do them. Only after God intervened and awakened you to do them. You understand our salvation is owing entirely to God's sovereign initiative and choice. And what that does is have some pretty remarkable effects on our lives, doesn't it? The implications of being born again, of being awakened by the sovereign love of God are simply powerful and profound. In fact, there are five things that are all in your notes, five things that the sovereign love of God that made us born again produces and affects. It affects our grumbling, our gloating, our gossip, our gratitude, and our gladness, doesn't it? Think about it. Grumbling. Grumbling. We grumble and complain. Because we think we have, we, because we have the audacity to think that we deserve better than what we're getting. But the truth is we don't. We don't. Re regeneration reminds us that we have nothing to complain about because the only thing we actually deserve is the wrath and judgment of God forever. Therefore, everything in Christ is grace. Number two, the love of God that made us born again affects our gloating, doesn't it? It affects our gloating, our, our bragging, our boasting, our arrogance, our, our feelings of superiority over other people. We literally have nothing to be proud of. We did nothing to get ourselves saved. The only contribution that we had to our own salvation were the sins that needed to be forgiven. The only contribution we made was the guilt that needed to be pardoned. All we had to offer was the filthiness that needed to be cleansed. Number three, the sovereign love that made us alive affects our gossip, doesn't it? You see, we gossip and slander because there's a problem with our theology. And the problem with our theology is that we think we are better than other people. And yet regeneration reveals at the deepest possible level just how delusional that really is. Gossip and slander displays at the deepest possible level that we have lost our grip on reality. And the reality is that we were born spiritual zombies. And how can one former spiritual zombie Gossip and slander against another spiritual zombie and not see how crazy that really is. Number four, the love of God that made us alive makes us grateful people, doesn't it? It makes us a grateful people. Because should we come to grips with what our situation was before the Father intervened, that we were on the brink of destruction? That we were dead in sin, slaves to sin, slaves to the evil one. That we were never going to believe the gospel until the Father awakened our souls. Then and only then will we be a grateful people filled with joy. And speaking of joy, number five. The love of God that made us born again makes us a glad people, doesn't it? Makes us a glad people. We should and must be the gladdest people on the face of the planet. Why? Because the deepest dilemmas of our lives have been sovereignly overturned. We're no longer slaves to sin. 
We're no longer going to hell. Can you believe it? Even though we should be there right now, we, we, we are reconciled to the Father. Death is not the end. We will be resurrected one day. How can it possibly be? But the Father would love us that much to make us sons and daughters of the living God. Which is exactly what happened to us. Look at verse 1. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. Here is the result that we should be called children of God. Even years later as an old man, you can totally tell it shocked John to be a son of the living God. And it should because that is a shocking thing. To be called a doctor, a hero, a soldier. A president or a king is nothing compared to being called children of the living God. You understand? I think about what does it mean? What, what does it mean to be sons and daughters of the living God? What, what, what does that mean? Which is a little bit ask, like asking, how long does it take to travel from one end of the universe to the other? That's too big. It is too massive. It's too expansive, it's too endless, it's too exhilarating. We cannot even begin to wrap our minds around the cosmic love of the Father that made us his children. The very least this means is that we are heirs. Heirs of everything the Father predestined to give us in and through the sacrifice of his own Son. You understand this, don't you? Don't you see, if you are in Christ... The kingdom is yours. Christ is yours. God is yours. Salvation is yours. Paradise is yours. Can you think of any privilege more advantageous than being sons and daughters of the living God? Can you? Don't even bother trying because there isn't one. And notice, notice very carefully. John, John is very careful with his wording here. You see, he doesn't want anyone to think that being children of God is merely some honorific title, but it is something profound and it is real and it is supernatural because look what he says. He's very careful and precise. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Notice, notice, and that is exactly what we are. Do you see his point? When the Father made us alive and we put our faith in Christ, what happened? What does the text say? We were adopted by God. Adoption. But you see, adoption is no mere change of title or status. We're not just called the children of God. We are the children of God. Adopted into the very family of the Trinity. We are connected, you understand, to the very life of God himself. Or as 2 Peter 1.4 puts it, we are partakers of the divine nature. I mean, are you getting a sense of why John makes such a big stinking deal about being born again? 
To be born again is to be sovereignly awakened by the father, which makes us adopted into his family. And get this, the change, the change that produces in our lives as a result is so positively devastating that the world in which we live should literally look at us like we are from another planet. That's exactly what John says. Look at the text. Here's the result of being regenerated by the Father. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And we are for this reason. The world does not know us because it did not know him. Do you see the connection that he makes? Being born again and adopted by the Father so utterly transforms our lives that we become unknown and unrecognizable to the world just as the creator himself is unknown and unrecognizable to the world. Did you see the disheveled mass of lost humanity? And its antagonistic estrangement from God does not know us. They do not understand us precisely because in our new birth, we resemble the very God who saved us, whom the world also does not understand. And they do not like to the degree that they killed his own son, whom he sent to save them. Put it this way. The born again apple does not fall very far from the tree that made it. Therefore, the world hates the apples, namely us, because it hates the divine tree that made the apples, namely God. I think this raises an important question, church. Does the world know you? Does the world know you? Does the... Dead in sin, non-Christian world recognize you as one of its own. Because you understand, don't you, that 2 Corinthians 2.16 says that Christians smell like death to the world. John says, in, or Christ says in John 15.19, that, that if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. You remember 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And if all men, if the people of the world speak well of you, it is precisely because you are either not born again or you are entirely way too silent about your faith. Either way, either way, the question becomes, do you see any evidence in your life that you are really, actually, truly born again? Because if you are, two things are going to happen. You will live a righteous life, however imperfect it will be in the world, and you will receive ridicule from the world. That's the present. Let's talk about the future. Let's talk about the future, which brings us to number two, the reality of the future. We will undergo unimaginable transformation. 
we will undergo unimaginable transformation. Because I don't know how you feel about diet plans. But researchers say that one of the things that make diet plans work, that makes diet plans sell really well, is not necessarily the arguments from science or biology, but the pictures. The testimonials, the, the before and after photos. You see, that's what makes a diet plan sell. You see, we want evidence. We want proof. We want results. We, we want the guarantee that, that who we are now will be transformed into this chiseled beefcake bronze god that we see in the picture. And my point is that, is, is that a before and after photograph is a little bit like what John is doing in the text. Look at verse 2. He says, Beloved. Now we are the children of God. That's who we are now. And it has not yet been revealed what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. Do you see the before and after photo? The, the, do, you, do you hear the future tense verbs one right after another? Look what he says. He says, right now, today, we are children of God. That's who we are right now. And we love that. We love being sons and daughters of the living God. And we would not trade that for anything in the world. And yet, the painful, unfortunate reality is we still sin. We still struggle every single day of our lives, don't we? We still lug around this fallen flesh. This is what Paul called in Romans 7, the body of death. Although truly saved and really forgiven and no longer slaves of sin, there is still something deep down within us that has not yet been redeemed. There's this inner corruption and power that wages war in our souls. Contaminates, pollutes every single thing we say and do. Calvin put it like this. He said, physically, we are dust and a shadow. And death is always before our eyes. We are exposed to a thousand miseries and our souls to innumerable evils so that we always find a hell within us. Or to put it in terms of the hymn writer, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Isn't that your experience? And yet Calvin goes on to say, it is necessary, therefore, that our senses should be withdrawn from the view of present things and that we should fix our gaze on that happiness which is as yet still hidden from our eyes. Do you hear what he's saying? We are wretched people. And that makes us really, really Sad, doesn't it? The things we think, the things we say, the things we do. And yet, church, you've got to have perspective. We must not despair. We can't let ourselves be discouraged as if who we are now is who we always will be. 
Rather, we must fix our gaze on that happiness which is as yet still hidden from our eyes, which is exactly what the Apostle John makes us do. Look very carefully at his encouragement. Verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we will be. Do you see it? Who you are now? is not who you will become. And who you will become has not yet been revealed. What does he mean? Meaning what? Meaning, listen carefully, born again children of God are going to get an upgrade one day. I mean, John's being a little cryptic here, but he's clear enough. There is coming in the future, remember this, there is coming in the future a complete transformation and renovation of which the new birth was just the first installment. Regeneration was just the first, it was just the beginning of a full and final transformation that still awaits us in the future. And what that's going to be, John says, he doesn't tell us because it has not yet been revealed. All we know is something big is going to happen and the best is yet to come. And yet having said that, it's not as if we're completely in the dark. Right? Because John does leave some little breadcrumbs as to the metamorphosis that will take place in the future. Look at the very next statement that he makes. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we will be. Here's what we do know. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is, namely Christ. And so do you hear, do you see, this is the after photo. This is the testimonial. This is the after photo. This is the proof. This is the proof and the guarantee that we will not always remain in our fallen condition. Do you see? We're going to be transformed one day into something we currently are not. And what that's going to be, we don't exactly know. All we do know, John says, is that when Jesus Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. I mean, what on earth is he saying? What is he talking about? Because what he is talking about, you understand, is eschatology. And he is going to use eschatology in the very next verse as the impetus and motivation to pursue radical holiness and purity in our lives. And so if you want radical holiness and purity in your lives, and I know you do, then we have got to get to the bottom of what it is that John is saying. And two questions, two questions that we have got to figure out. One. What is this appearance of Christ that John is describing? And two, what is the alteration that we will experience as a result? Those are the questions. What is this appearance of Christ that John is describing? And what is the, uh, the, the transformation, the alteration that we will experience as a result of this coming? Those are the questions. Question one, what is the appearance of Christ that John is describing? Because I want you to notice, look at the text. I want you to notice that there is a sense of urgency about this. There's a sense of imminency. 
You see, the tense of the verb indicates that Christ literally could appear at any moment. And when he does, we will be supernaturally transformed. Do you see that? And I bring that up very simply because I want you to see that I believe that what John is describing here is different than the second coming. It's not the second coming. You see, I believe the New Testament describes two different future appearances of Christ. There are two different events in which Christ appears at different times in history with radically different results for radically different reasons. And the one you know well, and it is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Where after the seven-year tribulation, Christ will return in glory, establish his kingdom on this very planet. It is physical. It is global. He will come down to earth, bring his people with him, and rule the nations from a throne in Jerusalem. What John is describing is not that. It is a different event. Because you see, the New Testament which reserves the right to tell us things that the Old Testament did not tell us. The New Testament informs us, get this now, that there will be a future appearance of Christ before, different from, and separate from the second coming, the details of which are radically different. You see John 14, 1 through 3, Philippians 3, 20 through 21, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 12 through 17 all revealed that at any moment, maybe even before I finish this sentence, Christ will suddenly appear like a thief in the night. And when he does, three things are going to happen. One, a resurrection. Two, a renovation. And three, a relocation. A resurrection, a renovation, and relocation. In other words, at any moment Christ could appear and raise his people from the dead. He will then renovate their lives and make them sinless and glorified. Instead of coming down to earth, he will instead remove us from the planet and bring us back to be in heaven with him. He will literally relocate us from the planet into the heavenly realm. And that's not the second coming which occurs after a seven-year tribulation. This could happen at any moment. I think these are completely separate events, two different arrivals. And maybe you're thinking, hold on a second, Jared. Are you, are you talking about the rapture? As a matter of fact, I am. And you don't have to call it that, but I hope you believe it. And maybe you're thinking, Jared, seriously, don't you think that sounds a bit far-fetched and mythological. I mean, come on, Jerry, really a rapture. And now that you mention it, I suppose it does sound a little ridiculous. It sounds about as ridiculous as God speaking the universe into existence. It sounds about as crazy as God parting the Red Sea by his power or a crucified savior rising from the dead. It sounds about as crazy as, as God making the sun stand still in the sky in Joshua chapter 6. It sounds about as crazy as a floating axe head in 2 Kings chapter 6. 
It sounds about as nuts as God removing Enoch from the planet before the flood. It sounds about as crazy as Elijah being taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. The rapture, I suppose, does sound a little outrageous, and yet I remain unmoved because that is the hope the New Testament gives. Which brings us finally to question number two. What is this transformation that John describes when Christ arrives? What, what is the transformation? And because look what he says. He, again, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. I mean, do, do you hear what John is describing? This is the instantaneous transformation of our bodies to resemble Jesus Christ when he comes. And his glory will be so unspeakable in its radiance and transforming power that he will make us sinless, perfected, glorified human beings. And that is exactly what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15. It's in your notes. And this I say, brothers, the flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruptibility. Behold, I speak to you a mystery, something not revealed in the Old Testament. We will not all sleep, die, but we all will be changed. In a moment, and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for it is necessary for the corruptible to put on incorruptibility and for this mortal body to put on immortality. That's exactly what Paul's describing in Philippians 3, 20, 21 for, for our citizenship is in heaven heaven from which from which we await a savior the lord jesus christ who notice who will transform our mortal body into a body uh, uh, into the likeness of the body of his glory according to the working of the power with which he will subject all things to himself do you see that's exactly what john is talking about I know all the caricatures. The rapture is not some magic carpet ride to avoid pain and persecution. Rather, it's about making a new humanity. It's about creating a kingdom people ready to fill the earth and populate a kingdom just like we were created to at the very beginning. And so the question is, church, is that what you are waiting for? Is the any moment arrival of Jesus Christ to make you sinless and glorified back to heaven? Is that such a reality that is so precious and beautiful to your souls that it transforms who you are in the most secret moments of your life? Sitting in traffic, walking the dog, browsing the internet, cooking dinner, waiting in line, whatever it is, instead of just staring down at our cell phones, we put that in our pocket and we discipline ourselves to think, I am right now waiting for the any moment arrival of Jesus Christ. Because you understand, this is not a mind game. What this is, is the power of the prophetic. What this is, is theological time travel, a glimpse of the future that radically alters the present. 
And that's exactly the question, isn't it? How does this work? How does eschatology actually do this in and through our lives? And that brings us finally to reality number three, the reality of the present. The reality of the present, we do experience unstoppable purification. We do experience unstoppable purification. And here now, here now is where we test the hypothesis. Does eschatology really, truly, actually have power to change and transform our lives? Does this help us in the trenches of real life situations? Does this help us in those private, secret, unguarded moments when no one can see us except God? Does eschatology help in those moments? And despite many modern-day claims to the contrary, John certainly seems to think so. Look at his final point in verse 3. He says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. Here it is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. Did you hear it? You say, this is John's target the entire time. His entire agenda was to display for us that one of the clearest manifestations of born-again children of God is the profound holiness in their lives because of Christ's return. Do you see? And notice in verse 3, notice his synonym for the arrival of Christ. What does he call the any moment appearance of Christ to transform us into the image of his likeness? What does Paul call it? He calls it hope, doesn't he? He says this is hope. You understand biblical hope is not merely the sense that things will get better somehow. Or that Christ will intervene in history in some vague, ambiguous way. No, biblical hope is sitting on the edge of our seats for the king to come in unspeakable radiance to raise us from the dead, never to sin or die again. That is hope. The question is, is that your hope? Is that your hope? Do you know this? I know this is going to be on the chin a little bit. But when a virus began to spread and we were forced to be locked down, people's fear of death revealed itself. And it made me wonder, either, it made me think, either we believe in the resurrection or we don't. And I think if we were persuaded by the resurrection of the dead, our responses may have been different. Because the question is, the, the reality is waiting waiting for the surprise appearance of Jesus Christ at any moment to transform us. It's a little bit like your last day of work before vacation. Remember that? Remember what that's like? You've got the ultimate getaway plan. You just can't wait to get away. You can't wait to get to the beach. You can't wait to get to the ocean, which is where all vacations should happen. And all day long, the mundane of your day is interrupted. With exciting reminders of your vacation, you spend the last day before your vacation in anticipation of what you're about to experience. You see, this right here in 1 John is like that, but it's better than that. It's better than that because sometimes, sometimes before vacations, we get 
lazy, don't we? We can't focus on our work. We cut corners. We're super distracted. We lose interest in what it is we're supposed to do. Passion fades, urgency wanes, priorities begin to slip, right? This is not that. This is not that. You see, listening for the trumpet to sound does not make us lazy. As we wait for the king and the golden shores of eternity, we don't lose focus, we gain focus. We don't lose passion, we gain passion. We don't lose urgency, we gain urgency. We understand better the priorities that we are called to do. And among our priorities is the radical and passionate pursuit of holiness. Look what he says. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope on him, notice, purifies himself even as he is pure. Do you see it? Do, do you see how practical eschatology is? If you have your hope set on the any moment arrival of Jesus Christ to transform us and give us glorified bodies never to sin or die again, what that produces in our lives is holiness, is purity. And notice he says it is self-purification. Purify yourself, meaning what? Meaning if you have this hope, to purify yourself means you stop at nothing. You spare no expense to put sin and corruption and temptation to death because you understand sin will stop at nothing to destroy you and therefore you must stop at nothing to destroy it. The question is, and this is the last question, and it's the most important question, how does this work? How does eschatology and the reality of what God is going to do in the future, how does this actually produce profound holiness and, and purity in our lives? Because you think about it, this isn't so hard to conceive. You know, everyone, my wife included, has a vision of what she would like the house to become. My wife is an expert remodeler fixer of things and she has this expanded list in her mind of what she would like to repair about the house and my question for you is my question for you is what are the repair projects that you would love to see done in your life what would you love to see changed and transformed husbands what would your wives love to see changed and transformed and renovated about your lives roommates and siblings those who live with you, what would they love to see transformed about your lives? Young adults and children, what do you think your parents would love to see changed and transformed about your lives through the power of God's word? Because you understand eschatology is the power or one of the ways to produce change in our lives. How does it work? How does it work? Is it because Jesus is the grouchy custodian? Come back any moment. Better not catch you chewing gum in the hallway, mister. Is that what this is? Is it because, is it because Christ is the, the cosmic Santa Claus who's coming to town? You better be good or he's going to put you on the naughty list. Is that what this is? Just fear of getting caught in the act? 
Is that how this produces holiness? Not even close. I mean, to be totally honest, I would rather not be caught in the act by Christ of committing some sin, but that's not primarily where the power of purity comes from. Rather, get this, this is so important, most important sentence of the whole sermon, the power of this hope of Christ's any second return to produce purity in our lives lies in the conviction that sinless perfection is the state of supreme satisfaction. I'm going to say that again. You need to hear that. The power, the power for purity comes from the conviction that sinless perfection is the state of supreme satisfaction. You see, this is a person who knows that when Christ appears and makes us sinless and glorified, never to sin again, that is the pinnacle of happiness. That is the apex of pleasure, do you see? Therefore, those who have their hope fixed on Christ long to experience as much of that future happiness as absolutely possible. And how they do that is by pursuing as much holiness as possible. Why? Because at the end of the day, happiness is holiness. Purity is pleasure. And sanctification is the path to our soul's deepest satisfaction. Do you believe this? Because you understand there are many good motives to pursue holiness in this life. Many good motives, but if our holiness is not owing to a supreme satisfaction that triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin, mark my words, we will not long resist. I close with this. Do you see the connection with eschatology? We still struggle in our lives with sin so unnecessarily simply because our souls are not yet acclimated to heavenly tastes. The flesh still appeals to us because we have not learned to feed on the fine cuisine of eternity. Therefore, go to the prophets, read the prophets. That's why I'm preaching on Isaiah. Read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel, read Daniel, read the minor prophets. Read first and second Thessalonians, read especially the book of Revelation. Read and read and read until the things of this world grow strangely dim. Read eschatology until you can almost hear the roaring multitudes in the kingdom singing, worthy is the lamb because the more pleasure you can taste in the world to come, the more purity you will experience in the life that is now. O Lord, you say to us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God.
Oh, Lord, we want to be pure. We want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to be obedient, and yet, Lord, we struggle. We struggle, and yet, Lord, we understand from your word that what we need, what we need is, is the growing conviction that what we read in the text is so beautiful and so true and so captivating that it would literally change who we are in the most private, secret moments of our lives, and that is exactly what we ask for. Oh, Lord, I pray that our eschatological hope, our hope and delight in what you will do at the end of the age, that would be so real to us, so tangible to us, that it would change and transform who we are in our most secret, private moments of our lives. And may you receive all the glory for that.